Welcome to the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. I am your host, A, and this is a podcast about the intersections of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism, mental health, and social justice. You might hear a color commentator in the background, and that is little A, my cat, and she loves to provide a little color commentary here and there. I hope you enjoy. In this podcast episode, I'm going to focus on the Protestant Reformation in England and Scotland. And the Protestant Reformation in England and Scotland stimulated the Puritan movement, which had a very strong force in the 13 colonies that became the United States and even has influences in today's purity culture found in the evangelical church. So we'll get started talking about Henry the eighth. I'm not going to talk about all of his six wives here, but I am going to touch on a couple of them. His first one was Catherine of Aragon, who was a strong Catholic. And at the time that they married, Henry was also a Catholic. So Henry and Catherine were married for 20 years. And whenever Henry came into power, it was shortly after the War of Roses, which was a civil war. And Henry did not feel secure in being leader of England because he knew that England was at a very fragile point. So he thought any controversial move that he could make, it could risk having another civil war. Now, at the time, England did not have a law that prohibited a woman from being ruler of England. But Henry thought that that was too controversial at the time to have a female leader of England, especially because at that time, England was still under the Church of Rome that was patriarchal. And a lot of Europe was controlled by the Catholic Church of Rome. And because of that, they would not have, let's say, good relations with a matriarchal country. So Henry and Catherine were trying to get pregnant and they were having some difficulties. And Catherine ended up having a daughter named Mary. Well, Henry wasn't very happy about this. Let's put it that way. And he had this idea that it was all Catherine's fault and thought that he needed to find another wife so that he could be able to have a son. He didn't realize that it's actually sperm that determines the sex of a baby. So it wasn't about the woman. So he was looking around and he found Anne of Boleyn. Now, Anne of Boleyn, she was beautiful. She was ambitious. She was intelligent, outgoing. She had all of these amazing qualities going for her, but he also had a fling with her sister, Mary. However, he cast Mary aside after just really falling for Anne and being focused on her. So his affair with Anne 
began around in 1526. And by the end of 1531, he actually banished his wife, Catherine, from court and replaced her with Anne. And at that time, he and Anne weren't married and he couldn't figure out how to divorce Catherine because at that time it was very difficult to file for a divorce whenever being ruled by the Roman Catholic Church. So Anne was very controversial because a lot of the people at that time did not believe in divorce, number one. And because Anne had a very lively personality. And she was very interested in Lutheranism and Protestant reformist ideas. Anne was even called more Lutheran than Luther himself. Henry had a very ambitious secretary named Thomas Cromwell. And Thomas Cromwell is watching all of this go down with all of these affairs and then Catherine and then Anne and just saying, you know, well, what can I do to find power in this situation and also help out Henry? So basically he can keep his job, right? Now let's look at Thomas Cromwell as a financial analyst. So As Cromwell was looking at this, he realized that England was struggling somewhat financially and could be helped by leaving the Catholic Church. So he goes to Henry and says, hey, you know, I I think that we should actually make something called the Church of England. You know, we could call it something like the Anglican Church. And Henry was like, well, I think that this is probably going to be heresy and Cromwell gave him a whole list of reasons why um, they should make the Church of England. And Henry said, okay, well, you know, I'll think about it, but I do have to get a divorce from Catherine and she's not going to be too thrilled about it if it's for a Protestant reason because she is Catholic. So Cromwell looked at this and he says, challenge accepted. And within seven years time, Cromwell developed a plan of how to get a divorce for Henry and create a church of England because he loves a good challenge. Now, here's something that he realized was you go all the way back in the Bible to a very obscure biblical passage, Leviticus 2021. And in this biblical passage, it says that a man could not marry his deceased brother's widow. So Catherine was actually married to Henry's brother before him. His brother's name was Arthur. And shortly after the wedding, uh, Arthur died. And Arthur died of unknown causes. Um, And (laughs) Just looking back at historical texts, they're like, oh, yeah, not really sure how this person died in England. Maybe it was poison. Maybe it was consumption, which is also known as tuberculosis. So anyhow, we're not really sure how Arthur died, but he died. And Catherine also claimed that they never had sexual relations, so therefore the marriage could also be annulled because of that. So the marriage could be annulled because of two different reasons that very obscure verse 
from Leviticus and also not having sexual relations, but there was no proof of that at the time. So Cromwell was like, all right, well, we got that set. Then here's the other thing with making the Church of England. Here are the reasons why he developed this plan and how it won over Henry. So he said, well, Henry, if I make you the head of the English church, it would free you of legal interference from the Pope's ecclesiastical authority and waive legal fees. Because what would happen is if you would um, make any kind of... um, legal decision that the the church of Rome did not agree with, they would charge you a fee. So then he could have all these fees be waived because then he is the one who has that power and control. Then it would be an act to secure the succession line if Henry would only have daughters because England was writing a fine line of being controlled by the church of Rome, which was patriarchal, and um, and then the possibility of maybe Henry only having daughters. So there was that. And it could also secure Cromwell's position as a secretary if, um, if the Tudor line continued. Next, the monasteries. So the monasteries, I talked about that in the first episode where they had indulgences And that ended up acquiring a very large sum of money in the Catholic Church, um, especially in these monasteries. And I mean, they would have gold, silver, precious metals, um, having precious jewels there. And Cromwell was like, hey, these would actually all be ours if we had the Church of England. And Henry really liked that idea, too. And, um, and then on top of this, then Cromwell got this idea that if people practice the Catholic religion, that then they could be charged in illegal use of spiritual jurisdiction and the clergy could be charged. Um, and <laughs> here's, here's the kicker here. If, if the clergy said, hey, you know, we don't want to be charged for illegal use of spiritual jurisdiction, they could get a royal pardon. But if they got a royal pardon, they would have to pay around 53 and a half million pounds in today's currency, which is an absurd amount of money. Um, Then lastly, if they got rid of the Catholic Church, then all of the monasteries taxes that used to go directly to the Pope would now go directly to Henry. So Henry was like, you know what? I don't care what the rest of Europe thinks about me. Do it, Cromwell. We are going to make the Church of England. Although the divorce was pretty messy, Henry was having a great time with Anne. They were vacationing all over And they went to this beautiful place called Calais, France. And that is where Anne got pregnant with Elizabeth I. And whenever Henry found out that Anne was pregnant, he was like, oh, no. So he contacts Thomas Cromwell and is like, hey, 
you really have to get a move on these divorce papers before Anne starts showing. And Thomas Cromwell was like, hey, no problem. I got you. And he did. So in January of 1533, Henry and Anne got married in secret. Then Cromwell quickly developed the Statute of Appeals. And in the Statute of Appeals, it claimed that England was its own empire and forbade Rome from making any decisions in English matters. So the lawmakers passed the Statute of Appeals. And then after the Statute of Appeals was passed, then Thomas Cromwell was like, oh, yeah, also... um, Henry and Anne, they're married now. And the lawmakers were like, what? So talk about keeping a big secret. So there was a new archbishop because of changing this entire country from Catholicism to Protestantism, basically overnight. Uh, And this was due to Henry wanting to be with Anne and then Anne being pregnant. In May of 1533, Thomas Cranmer, the new Archbishop of Canterbury and leader of the English Protestant Reformation, he said that the marriage to Henry and Catherine was illegitimate. And, And As a result of this, I mean, they had to denounce everything and say, yeah, actually, this was a a whole scam or or a sham, whatever people call it, you know, potato, potato. So they said, it's it's all a sham. And then five, five days later, Thomas Cranmer was like, oh, yeah, and guess what? Henry and Anne are married and it is lawful by God. God approves this union and it's a very beautiful thing. So this was told to the public. The Church of England was much different than other Protestant movements in the rest of Europe because it was very all about Henry. So Henry even passed a series of acts calling the supreme head on earth of the Church of England. That's what he started calling himself, the supreme head on earth. (laughs) Could you imagine having that be a person's nickname and then following that person as a religious leader and a political leader? Wow. So anyhow, this Church of England It wasn't much different than Catholicism. And so because of that, there was very little resistance because people are like, you know what? This is just the same old, same old. Instead, we just pay taxes to Henry instead of to the Pope. (laughs) Um, So here's some things that he did differently. He suppressed monasteries because, again, he's like, I want all the money I can have. And then the other thing that was different was he introduced the Bible and vernacular in churches. Before then, the Bible was taught in churches only in Latin. And so everyday people couldn't understand the Bible that was being taught in churches. So then being taught in everyday language was very helpful in uniting people in similar theology. 
So he also permitted clergy to marry for a period of time. And then he decided against that because he was like, hmm, I don't know. That's a little bit too controversial. And again, I don't want to start a civil war. So um, with the resistance not being very great, he did burn some Lutherans and Catholics alike at the state who were like, hey, you're a little bit of a jerk and a narcissist. He didn't like that very much. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to burn you for religious heresy. And then that was that. Now, he did kill Anne of Boleyn. Um, and, you know, he just cycled through a lot of different wives. He was uh, very unhappy about having difficulties, having a son, and having wives who were not in love with him as much as what he was in love with himself. And that's why he just kept killing them. And he's like, yeah, I can do whatever I want because I'm saved by the grace of God myself. So, because that's how he perceived him to be. Well, one of his wives, Jane Seymour, was the lucky wife who did give him a son. And that son was named Edward VI. And that was from his third wife. Well, after Henry died, then Edward VI came into power. Let's just say that the English were much more excited to have a 10-year-old king than what they were his dad, Henry VIII. So Edward came into power whenever he was 10 years old, and the English were like, this is so great. He's going to be like a, a second King Josiah, which is a reference to the Old Testament whenever uh, Israel was no longer following after uh, the laws, the Levitical laws. And then um, they were following after many gods at that point and creating these different um, images, whether it be through stone or through metal, and they were worshiping these. And then King Josiah came along, he destroyed all of this, and then he united the people under um, the, the God of Moses. So this is what the English thought was going to happen with their King Josiah or Edward VI. And Edward VI, he did further the reform by creating a more systematic way of doctrine and worship and discipline for the Anglicans. And this was what the Anglicans were looking for because at that point it was pretty chaotic and he was creating this united front. Well, this came to a very quick end. He died whenever he was 13 years old. We don't know what happened. We don't know if it was poison. We don't know if it was an infection, tuberculosis, whatever. But he died. And then there was a coup. There was a coup because no one could really quite decide on who was going to be the next heir to the throne. So you had Mary I, who was the first in line for the throne. She was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. However, a lot of England was Protestant and she was a very devout Catholic. So they were like, I don't know about her. 
I don't think we want to have her as queen. Then there was Elizabeth I, who was Protestant. However, they didn't think they wanted her because she was conceived out of wedlock, which was a no-no at the time. Then you have Jane Grey, who is a great-granddaughter of Henry VII and cousin of Edward VI. Now, it seems like a very obscure relation, but they're like, yeah, that'll do. And she's Protestant, too. So the people who decided to throw a coup, then they tried putting Jane Grey as next queen. However, this did not work out very well. At first, the council supported it. Then they went back and they changed it. And it was all because Mary was predicting this. She was very witty and uh, just very smart. She was forward thinking. And I know that her nickname is Bloody Mary, but I just want to show some compassion to her because she went through a lot. You know, her dad wasn't really involved in her life and had so many different affairs. Then her mom was, you know, exiled and she was exiled with her mom. So then they have to go and leave their home. Then at the age of 17, her parents divorced, which was so rare at the time. And she had to go before the Pope and deny her own legitimacy. And this was just a real point of shame for her as she had dedicated so much of her life to the Catholic faith and then has to go before the Pope and say, I'm illegitimate. That that must have been so impactful for her and for her psyche. So uh, Mary responded to this coup by military force, and she also used the printer to print proclamations saying that she was the queen. So then there were all of these people who were like, okay, Mary is the queen of England, even though for a few days, for about nine days, Jane Grey was actually the Queen of England. So because of having these prints of the proclamations and also just showing strong military leadership, Mary had popular support and ended up saying, okay, Jane, you're out. Well, Mary decided not to kill Jane at that point. Because she's like, you know what? Jane is young. She got forced into this. I'm going to let this slide. So Mary started off her reign as being very sweet and tender. And that was until a year after she started her reign. And Jane's dad was like, you know what? I really want my daughter to become queen. And tries overthrowing Mary again. And Mary's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not happening. And so she decides to literally wipe out all of her political opponents. And she was being tolerant to the Protestants until that happened. She was like, the Protestants want my throne, so I'm not going to be tolerant. And they are an enemy to me. So she decided that it was going to be her best political move to kill them 
or just put very tight restrictions on Protestants. So she ended up reinstating the legitimacy of her parents' marriage, which then made her legitimate and her reign as queen as being legitimate. And she brought back Catholicism to England, which meant that there was papal authority in England. Then she decides to marry Philip of Spain, who is the son of her former fiancé, Charles V. Incestuous royal relationships. Am I right? Wow. So, anyhow, then all of these different moves were not very popular. She was starting off very popular until jealousy, frustration of the whole Jane situation got the better of her. So she ended up having difficulties with pregnancy and giving birth and did not have any children as a result of it. And Philip would go away off into Europe. He even said that he wasn't physically attracted to her. So this marriage was in shambles. So Mary's feeling very frustrated. I mean, she's experienced a lot of difficulties in her life, a lot of lack of validation, and ends up deciding to revive the heresy laws, which were some laws that were instated a long time ago, and she reinstated them in 1555. And by instating these, she started burning Protestants at the stake. She burned about 300 Protestants approximately, dozens more died in prison, and 800 Protestants fled to Germany and Geneva. I'm actually surprised that she was called Bloody Mary because if she was killing people more at the stake, I would think that being called Cinder Mary is more appropriate um, considering the causes of death. But anyhow, she's called Bloody Mary instead. So um, she died in 1557. So she died pretty young. And that's whenever they found out that she had cancer. And it was a cancer that was causing fertility issues. And Elizabeth I came into power after um, Mary died. And Elizabeth I, even though being a Protestant, said that she wishes that she would have done better. She wishes that she would have done better for her sister and feels like she failed her sister. So Mary dies and she dies young. And the Protestants are like, thank God, now we're going to have Protestant ruler, which was Elizabeth I. And they were like, at this point, we don't even care that she's illegitimate. We just really need to stop dying at the stake at this point. So she ascended the throne in 1558 and she was hailed as Deborah, which again, this is an Old Testament reference. And Deborah was a judge in Israel. So Israel was apparently having 
um, difficulty following the laws of God. So Deborah came and she was a leader and she was a judge and she restored uh, structure and justice in the country of Israel. So that's what people were hoping for in Elizabeth I's reign. However, she was a disappointment for some Protestants, particularly Puritans, because she was much more of a politician than what she was of a religious leader. And they were looking for more of a religious leader. And she strongly distrusted Catholics or Protestants that were zealous because she saw that zealousness of a religion was a threat to her political power because that's what she was seeing in Europe. So she thought, well, I could get overthrown if we have people who are too zealous. So she ended up passing two religious laws in her first year as queen. She passed the act of supremacy for her to be divine leader of the Church of England. Sounds familiar? Yeah, she takes after her dad a little bit. So then she has the act of uniformity for worship, and that is to follow the Book of Common Prayer. And through this Book of Common Prayer, that's what all of these Anglican services had to follow. So it was a curriculum for churches, and all these churches had to follow it. There were no options of following it. Elizabeth I had a nemesis, and that was Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots is not the same as Bloody Mary. Both of them love to kill Protestants, but they are not the same person. Mary, Queen of Scots, her dad was James V of Scotland, and her mom was Mary of Guise of France. Now, I talked about the House of Guise in last episode, and the House of Guise was a very devious bunch, and... Yeah, they love to start conspiracies and overthrow people. They they just had a really unique reputation. Let's put it that way. So she was seen as being a political threat. Well, anyhow, her dad ended up passing away suddenly. And her mom was like, you know what? You need to get a French education. So she sends married to France to go get a French education, and it is very posh. So she grows up there. She ends up marrying Francis of France there and becomes queen consort for a period of time. But Francis dies prematurely by the time that Mary was age 18. So she had gotten some political time under her belt. And she had learned all of these different skills while she was in France and grew up to be very beautiful. Um, her beauty was legendary. And during her absence in France, Scotland actually became reformed by the Protestants. So she came back to Scotland and she is like, what is going on? She was very frustrated with her mother and with the country and was not acting Scottish anymore because she had so much French influence. 
So she was having a really hard time leading the country and the country was also having economic issues. So she was working very hard at trying to unite the country again. And she was trying to do so through Catholicism and it was chaos. So she ended up being able to unite the country somewhat, but it was still unstable and it was still shaky. And, and she was starting to lead it through her charisma and through her beauty and these different skills that she had. Again, it, it was still shaky though. And she ended up having another marriage that was the nail in her coffin. And that was to her cousin, Henry Stewart in 1565. So why this was the nail in the coffin. So Henry Stewart was known for being very good looking. So she's like, okay, I'm beautiful. You're beautiful. It would just make sense that we got married. And so he's like, sure. Yeah, whatever. So she married him for his looks uh, he was not known for having a good character. He was not known for being a good politician. And because of that, they clashed a lot. So um, anyhow, they started parting their ways and were living separate lives. But she was like, okay, he is basically a liability to me. And he ends up getting sick. And while he is in this home being sick and trying to recover from the illness, she actually has him blown up. That's right. She has him blown up. That is absolutely wild. And sources say that he was strangled, then blown up. So she was like, I want no chance of him recovering from this. And, you know, as if illness wasn't enough in the 1500s, I mean, she's like, you know, we'll see if we can kill him three ways here. So that's how much she loved her husband or didn't. So then um, after his death, then she ended up marrying her other lover named James Hepburn. And then with marrying James Hepburn, people are like, okay, yeah. You just basically married him right after your husband died, this very violent death. And they're like, yeah, you are guilty for this. And so is James Hepburn. So both of them were imprisoned separately. And um, and then Mary ended up saying, you know what, I'm going to give up the throne and give it to my son, James. And, um, and James was only one year old at that point. And Scotland was like, you know what? We're fine with that. We'll just exile you to England. So she goes to England to find refuge with Elizabeth and Elizabeth is like, yeah, sure. Come on over. So she goes over to England <laughs> and then Elizabeth imprisons her for the next 18 years of her life. And it was basically this cat and mouse game for the next 18 years. And, um, and eventually, uh, Elizabeth had Mary killed because Mary even imprisoned was a political threat because that's how charismatic she was. 
and the English Catholics really wanted her to be the next Queen of England. And because of that, Elizabeth decided that she couldn't risk that happening. And that ended up uh, leading to Mary Queen of Scots' death. I mostly focused on women in this podcast episode because those were the most influential figures of the Protestant movement in England and Scotland. However, there is a man that I need to mention, and that is John Knox. John Knox was a beacon for the Puritans. He was very intense, very forceful. The different things that he said were absolutely radical. Like he said, a celebration of mass is worse than a cup of poison. Yeah, he would make different analogies like that where it was like, really? Okay, that's a, that's a little bit over the top there. So anyhow, um, he blamed economic grievances on uh, Marie de Guise, who was the regent of Scotland while Mary was in France. And Marie was like, you know what? I've had enough of this guy. And ends up exiling John Knox to England. And he was like, hey, this is great because this is Protestant. So he ends up becoming friends with Edward VI, um, who, again, is a child. John Knox is a grown man. And John Knox was like, you know what? I really believe in this child king, and I think he's going to do wonders. So he's friends with Edward VI for his short reign and helps Edward VI just develop reform and order for the Anglican church until Edward VI's death. Then Bloody Mary becomes queen, and he's like, okay, I think my time is up here, and ends up bouncing around between countries because no one really wants him because he is a loose cannon whenever it comes to talking. So he did really enjoy Geneva and thought in Geneva that that is how the Protestant church should be in Scotland and England. However, it never really became that way, but he thought that that was the Protestant utopia. So after Bloody Mary had passed, then that was around the time that Mary Queen of Scots was in power. And so again, he was experiencing threats by Mary Queen of Scots. So he just had a really rough time with Mary's. Very challenging. And he and Mary would have debates and she was hesitant to kill him though, because it might spark a civil war because there were a lot of Protestants that really loved John Knox and she didn't want to risk having a civil war. However, you know, it was this uh, respect-hate relationship. I wouldn't go so much as to say that there was any love there. But anyhow, so um, he he was pretty much a religious fugitive. <laughs> And he ended up going to England for a short bit and, again, helped with the Reformation movement there and contributed to Elizabeth I's 
common book of prayer because he had studied theology so much and had helped with the Protestant structure before. She thought that he would make a good contribution for the common book of prayer. So it wasn't until the death of Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots that England and Scotland was united under Protestantism, and that was united under James VI of Scotland, who was uh, Mary Queen of Scots' son, and he also became known as James I of England, and um, you might recognize that name from the King James Bible. That's the James. So that's where we're going to pause here, and we'll pick back up next week. So thank you so much for listening. This is A, and you are listening to the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. Thank you.